Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to look today, our text for today. We are in this series called Show Me Love. Everybody say, Show Me Love. So we're talking about the seasons of relationships. In week one, I talked about friendship, not just friendship between man and man, but also friendship even in the marital relationship. Last week, Pastor Chad did a great job uh, laying before us the heart, God's heart and God's desire for marriage. A very, very practical message, but a message that has great theological framework as well. Today, I want to move to... Message number three in the series that I'm entitling The Laboratories of God. The Laboratories of God. This is in a book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, the passage you and I will read, verse 22 through 32, is unrivaled in Scripture as it relates to marriage. This is one passage and the clearest passage in which the curtains, so to speak, of God's revelation for marriage are pulled back and we're able to see God's intent and desire more clearer in this passage perhaps than any other passage in the Bible. Now, one of the most era-defining movies of my childhood was The Karate Kid. How many of you remember watching The Karate Kid, right? They made a new Karate Kid now, but it was a story about this loser kid who gets beat up and so this older Japanese man teaches him how to succeed in life using karate, right? As a kid, man, it was inspiring. How many of you were inspired by Karate Kid? It was an awesome movie. Well, for what it's worth, I went back to watch it with my kids, and it didn't seem nearly as good now as it was back then, okay? Like, I don't know how getting into the crane position doesn't signally, you know, signal clearly to your opponent that this is about to happen, right? And so you remember this, this, this image in the Karate Kid of how you know Daniel would get into the crane position ready to pounce, ready to destroy whatever contender was in front of him. One of the most captivating things to me about this movie was how Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel how to fight. Daniel comes over to be trained. You'll see this image. And Mr. Miyagi basically gives him a number of chores, right? He tells him to wash the cars, wax on, wax off, right? He tells him to sand the deck and he tells him to paint the fence. And Daniel does these things for about a month until he's finally fed up with it. He's tired of painting the fence. He's tired of washing cars. He's tired of sanding the deck. And then Mr. Miyagi shows him all of a sudden that learning to do those mundane tasks Basically, in doing them, he's learned all of the motions that will make him a great fighter. It was preparation for performance. It was preparation for the fight. Well, Paul shows us that in Ephesians chapter 5, God has set up the world in basically the same way. God has set up the world in which we do things that are seemingly mundane and ordinary to prepare us for what God really desires for our lives. And so what he does in Ephesians 5 is he takes three very common relationships. I would be, um, it would be uh, wise for us to listen because each of us are affected in some way by these relationships. Three fundamental relationships, the relationship of marriage, the relationship of parenting and children or what we call family, and the relationship we have with our work. So marriage, family, and work. And what Paul does in Ephesians 5, he shows us that these very ordinary relationships are like laboratories that God uses to teach us to be more like himself. 
These are laboratories that God uses to help create in us and teach us the character skills needed to become the people that God wants us to be. Now, in each of these relationships, marriage, family, and work, we learn a very important quality that Jesus, and define Jesus as well. That is the quality of submission. Submission. Submission is the quality that Jesus had, and submission is the quality that would define each of these three relationships, both marriage, family, and work. Paul opens this section with verse 21. Notice what the scripture said. He said, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The last, that by the way, is the last phrase of the previous section on on how to walk. And yet then Paul uses that statement as a transition into the discussion on gospel-centered relationships. If you look at your Bible, you'll see that 21 is the last part of a section before there's a heading in your Bible and then 22 begins. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Our English translators did that because 21 doesn't just belong to the previous section. 21 also belongs to the post section. It it defines and helps give a clear picture of what gospel-centered relationships will look like in our life. He says, submitting to one another out of respect for Christ. Now, he's going to highlight three different relationships. He's going to highlight marriage and family and work in which we submit to each other as a way of learning to be more like Jesus. Now, it's very important. Let me just say here from the outset of this message. The fact that we submit to others in relationships does not make us inferior to the person to whom we are submitting. I want to make that really clear. And if you are a person in which another person is submitting to you, that does not make you superior to the person that is submitting to you. And another one of Paul's letters, we've looked at this many times, but Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, 28, he said, In Christ there is neither Jew nor is there Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You could, have, you could add whatever other relationships you want. There is neither parent nor child. There is neither boss nor employee. There is neither employer nor employee. No, no, no. He said, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are all equal in our nature in Christ. But that doesn't mean for a time we don't play various roles. So although we're equal in nature, we still play various roles that God defines for our lives. Even Jesus had to play the role of submission. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that even though Jesus was God himself in his nature and thus equal with the Father, the Bible says that he still submitted his will to the will of the Father. Jesus the Son, the divine Son of God, submits his will to the will of the Father. And the one passage that I don't like to read, the writer of Hebrews says that by doing that, he learned submission. The Father made Jesus learn submission through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. God gives us a sense of a newness through suffering. He gives us a sense of a new gift if we have right perspective through suffering. He learned it. But he did all of this by being fully equal with God. That's what's amazing to me. Let me give you an illustration of this. The last church that I served at, I was on staff and on our staff was a part-time security person who was in our building and was to you know keep everything safe in our Wednesday night gatherings and our Sundays as well. But he was also 
um, a full-time police officer. And it was great because he understood the fine line between someone needed compassion and when someone needed to be arrested, right? He, he knew that very well. And so when he, was, when he was at the church, because he was a security officer for our area, he was under my authority. Me being a pastor, he was under my authority on those Wednesday nights because I'm head of that specific area. But sometimes he would come in his police car, and when we stepped out of church after it got done and I stepped onto the road, I was under his authority. So who was superior to whom? It just depends on who's playing what role. If I'm playing a role that is in this area called the church, then he, I'm superior to him. If he is playing the role of police officer on his context, which is the street, then he is superior to me. You understand, superiority is not just something that is equal in nature. Superiority is something that we speak to as it relates to the roles we play. That's the exact idea of what Paul is teaching here. It has nothing to do with superiority, inferiority. It has to do with the various roles we play at different points in our lives. So let's look first and foremost at the first laboratory God uses to make us more like himself. That laboratory is marriage. Marriage. The first laboratory is marriage. Let's begin reading in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, there's your favorite verse. I'm sure you have that cross-stitched somewhere on your pillow at home. I'm sure that's on your pillow, okay? Because, verse 23, the head, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Then he repeats it, just so we're clear. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Did you see that? In everything. Just so you can't ever accuse me of soft-pedaling what the Bible teaches, I want to see it again. The wife is to submit to her husband in everything. Lady says, well, I, am I supposed to submit my husband in this area? Well, is it in the in everything category? If it's in the in everything category, you tell me. Now, ladies, listen, I understand right now, some of you, your head's about to explode. Okay, and maybe this raises all kinds of questions and it raises all kinds of you know, concerns because you've seen this distorted and you've seen this abused. But just hang with me for a minute. But I understand where you're coming from. Please just don't write me off yet. I understand very well. I'm married to a very competent leader, a very competent lady who can hold her own in any context, in any place, all right? So hold, hold that just for a few moments. Look what he says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this. I'm going to come back to that. It's a great phrase. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined, will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, marriage teaches us about Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. So let's start with the husbands. I want to start with you, men. I'm going to start with the gentleman first. Here we are. The husband submits to his wife by leading and loving her like Christ leads and loves the church. I'm going to say it again. The husband submits to his wife. It's a mutual submission by loving and leading her like Christ 
leads the church. In teaching this, Paul, of course, draws us all the way back from the creation account. In fact, several times in this passage in Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul will quote from the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis chapter 2, I see at least four ways that a man was to have a Christ-like leadership role in the home. This is four specific ways that men are to lead in a Christ-like way in their marriage. Let me hit each of those four. Number one, men, we are to first of all lead and providing for her. We're to lead in providing for her. Notice before God created the woman, he had the man working in the garden. It wasn't till after man had a job that God brought him a wife. Quick application here. Ladies, if he can't hold down a job and he's 28 years old and still using his parents' credit cards, you might want to think twice. You need to run, baby, run, all right? And that's free advice. That's just from Uncle Craig right there, okay? That'll just help you out right there. Get out of the way. He had a job before God brought him a wife. That's really important. In other words, get your outside work done first, and then you begin to worry about what it is that God desires for you to do in your own marriage. So let's start with the husband in providing for her. Second, he was to lead the way spiritually. Husbands are to lead the way spiritually. Notice when she was brought to him, he already had a relationship with God. The woman did not teach the man who God was. The the man taught the woman who God was. You please understand this, that God already had relationship with man. He already had communicated to man his desires. And now Adam was tasked with relaying the commands of God and leading her in obeying those commands. So men, you were to be spiritual leaders in your home. You are to be the the focus or the hub of spiritual activity in your home. Did you notice that phrase there in verse 29? The Bible says that we are to wash her with the water of the word. Wash her with the water of the word. What's the application? That means, men, you lead in the application of Scripture in your family. You lead in the application of Scripture to your wife. Now, some of you are saying, oh, I'm overwhelmed with that because you're a man and you get the image of trying to lead your wife in a Bible lesson. And you're like, she, she's smarter than me and I know that and she knows that and she knows more of the Bible than me and I know that and she knows that and God knows that. So this is going to be really embarrassing. How am I going to lead my wife in knowledge of Scripture when I know that she knows more of Scripture than me? Well, please understand very clearly, we are to lead the application of Scripture in our marriages. So that doesn't mean a lot of times that maybe she doesn't have more knowledge of Scripture or more knowledge in one area, but you are to lead in the application of that Scripture. So I'm going to just give you one quick little experiment, guys. This is one little quick experiment that you can use and you can set yourself up to be a person who is leading. Tonight when you get home, I want you to look at your wife and say, hey baby, how can I pray for you? And then I want you to do this. I want you to write down the things that you can pray for because you're about to pray for them. And then after you do that, I want you to start praying for them. And here's what you got to do. All you got to do is remember one point in my sermon, just one. You don't have to remember all of them, but if you'll just remember one point in my sermon and then pray that point of the sermon in application to your marriage, what happens is you'll get done praying, you'll look up and she's going to be crying and you're going to be leading and you're going to feel awesome and you can write me a thank you note and I'll be ready to receive it. Okay? You got to step up to the plate and lead in the application of scripture to your wife. Notice it says wash her with the word. That means you become the primary mouthpiece declaring to your wife God's feelings about her. You are the primary mouthpiece to declare God's truth about your wife to her. Namely, she's valued. Namely, she's cherished. Namely, she's precious in God's sight with a bright future because of God's plans for her. Husbands, 
I've got a great question for us. What if your wife's identity was built solely on your compliments and encouragement to her? How strong would her self-identity be? What if your wife's complete identity was built on your words of encouragement and your words of commendation to her? I'm going to give you another experiment because I just feel good today, okay? I'm feeling generous. Here you go, guys. Here's what you do. You write down these passages. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, Proverbs 31, and the Bible says in Galatians 5, each of these are four different passages that speak to Christ-like characteristics that we are to find in our spouse. Here's what you do. You write down every Christ-like characteristic that you find in those four passages. You put it on a sheet of paper, and then what you do is over the next few weeks, you create a scavenger hunt and look for every single one of those characteristics. When you see it, call it out and, and speak to it. I see that you were this way. Oh, you exhibited Christ in this way. Oh, you exhibited Christ in that way, and just call it out. And what you'll be doing is you'll be washing your wife with the water of God's Word. This is how God calls us as men to lead spiritually. Thirdly, we as men are to take the lead in romance. We're to take the lead in romance. You say, Craig, that's not in the passage. The first human words recorded in the Bible, the first human words, the first time that humans actually give voice to words, you know what it was? It was Adam composing a love poem to his wife. Go read it if you don't believe me. The first word that came out of a human's mouth was Adam saying, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He was romancing his wife with his words. You know what that means, men? That means we should be budgeting for, we should be suggesting the date nights, and we should be executing and planning the date nights. Can I get an amen from ladies in here? So you and I, we as men, we should be the one figuring out. Where the relationship is in trouble. We should be trying to figure out when the relationship is in trouble and when we need some counseling. See, it's usually the opposite. My 12 years of pastoring, it's almost always the opposite. It's the wife dragging her husband into the church for counseling. It's the wife dragging her husband into the marriage street that he's reluctant to go on. It's the wife dragging her husband into the situation where they need help. No, we as men are to lead in that. And finally and fourthly, we are to lead in sacrifice. Men, we are to lead in sacrifice. Verse 31, Paul references God's instructions for a man to leave his previous life. That was his subject to his mom and dad and to cleave to his wife. The imagery is that of a trapeze artist letting go of one single bar to grab hold of the next bar so that they can move on with a new season of life. And Paul, of course, compares this relationship uh, to Jesus' relationship with us. Jesus left his heavenly home and he laid down his life for us. Now we are to do the same for our wives. Now listen, men, laying down your life doesn't simply mean being willing to die for her. It means daily putting her needs before your own needs. It means using your power and your leadership to serve her. So you know what that means. Just real practical application. It means that I give her needs and preferences more weight than my needs and preferences. So listen, guys, if I'm serving my wife like Christ serves the church, that means that in 94.8% of the places where we disagree, we are going to end up doing what she wants and not what I want because most decisions in marriage are not spiritual leadership decisions. Most of them are preferences, and mine should always be second to hers. So that means she's going to win about 95% of the time. Now, she doesn't win in spiritual leadership decisions. I'm not saying that. In just a minute, we'll, we'll look at that. She does not lead in that. 
and she does not win in that based on her opinion. But in any decision that's outside of that, then I give preference, I give weight to her decisions over mine. I give weight to her needs and preferences over my needs and preferences. To borrow from the great Clive Staples Lewis here, C.S. Lewis said, Men, in the marriage relationship, you wear a crown, but the crown you wear is first and foremost one of thorns. That's what you men wear. You wear a crown of thorns in the relationship that we are willing to sacrifice, to lead our wives, to leverage our leadership for the sake of the women in our life. That's how I submit to her. I submit to her by using my leadership to serve her. Now, before we move on to the wife, let me point out there that in one sense, humanity's fall happened through a failure of the man to lead. Okay, we see this often. Go back to the garden. What's happened? We find in Genesis 3 that the serpent has slithered into the garden. And the Bible says that the serpent then began to question the woman. And the Bible says that, that when, when the woman was tempted to eat the fruit, that the man was with her. If you go read that in Hebrew, that doesn't mean he was like in the vicinity grilling hamburgers over on the other side. It means that he was next to her when the serpent came up to her and tempted her to eat this, which means he failed in leading spiritually. Not only did he fail in leading spiritually, he failed in protecting his wife. There's how it should have gone. It should have gone, the serpent is slithering up to the wife and Adam jumps in front and says, hey, what you doing talking to my wife? Don't you talk to my wife? Don't you, don't you have that conversation with my wife like that? So the failure of Genesis 3 was not so much a sin of commission as it was a sin of omission. It was the failure of man to lead. It was the failure of man to step into the gap. So humanity falls because men didn't lead like Christ. Humanity fell because husbands didn't lead the way they were called to lead. And I would suggest that when men in this church reassume their leadership role, that our families and our society as a whole in America will be changed when men learn how to lead again. That our society will change when men take up the rightful place. When men take up the rightful leadership role. You know what studies say in our nation right now? Studies say that if a child gets saved, if a child's the first one to get saved in a family, there's a 3.5% chance that everyone else in the household gets saved. If the mama gets saved first, it is a 17% chance that the rest of the family comes to know Christ. If a daddy gets saved first, it is a 93% chance that everybody in the family will serve Christ. Do you see what's wrong with America? You see where we're at as a nation. The lack of men taking the leadership and leading and serving and loving and leading the way Christ loves his church. So men, listen to me. Your families will be most impacted when you are the one leading in family devotions. When you are the ones setting the priorities. When you are the ones leading in discipline. When you are the ones that are keeping the family schedules on track. And as it stands now, a lot of men in our nation, even in our churches, are on autopilot when it comes to their family. They're on autopilot. They come on, let their lives lead. After a while, they, they've, they've been leading all day at work. Guys, if some of you show the same level of initiative at your job that you do in your family, you'd be fired in a week. You'd be done. You'd be gone. And yet your family is your most important assignment. Your family is more important than your job. Your family is more important than what it is that you're putting your hands to on outside work. Listen, we have a lot of great men at this church. We have a lot. I'm not trying to come down on you, but I'm telling you, we need a whole lot more. And if we're going to be poised as a church to take ground in this territory, we're going to have to have more men step up and be men. We're going to have to have men be men. 
We're gonna have to have them take on their place. I was reading an article this week from International Mission Board. Did you know that women applicants to go to the hard places like the 1040 window in the, the world, the unreached people groups, the women applicants outnumber the men seven to one from America right now. Now, listen, I'm, I'm thankful for, praise God for those women. They're faithful and courageous, but men should be leading the way into hard areas of unreached areas. It should be not women coming from America to lead in the hardest, most difficult areas. And it certainly shouldn't be one to seven ratio. So it takes men. Ladies, amen. Yeah, amen. Now let's talk to the ladies. Here's, here's you, wife. You reflect Jesus in how you submit to that leadership. You reflect Jesus in how you submit to that Christ-like leadership. As I showed you twice in this passage, she is told that some, submit to your husbands in everything. So what does that mean? Well, let me first point out what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean the dominance of the man, as if she just exists as a serf in his house to cater to his whims. No, no, no. Because just as we saw in the passage, the husband is told first to lay down his life for her. Okay? Nor does it mean, ladies, you got to understand that you allow yourself to be put into a situation where you might be harmed. You're never as a lady to be put yourself in a situation where you'd be harmed. Notice what it says in verse 22. The Bible says, submit to him as to the Lord. That means as a way of serving God, not in the place of God. I don't submit to my husband in the place of God. This is so important. Please don't miss this. I submit to my husband as the scripture said, as a way or as to the Lord, which means if my husband's telling me to do something that would make me disobey the Lord, I disobey my husband. Because that's not submitting to as to the Lord, that's submitting against to the Lord. It's not saying that I'm submitting as he is my God. No, it's as to the Lord. So if my husband's ever put me in a place where I'm in physical harm's way, I need to get out. I need to come to a pastor. I need to go seek counsel. I need to find help. Also, notice this text doesn't mean that all women everywhere should submit to men. As if women can't lead in the workplace. As if women can't lead in government. He is said in marriage. See, we, I often hear that. You read a lot of blogs about that, that, that women are to submit to men, so, so we take it out of the context of marriage and we say that has to happen in every context. And that's what you get people saying. No, 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 he's talking about in the context of the marriage relationship. Paul talks about marriage. He talks about connection, covenant relationship. Now, finally, guys, let me also point out something here. This verse is addressed to the ladies, not to the men. You know what that means? That means you can't use this as a verse to wield or weld over your wives. No, no, no. It's her verse, not your verse. That means you shouldn't quote it to your wife. It's hers to obey, not yours to demand. I want to say that again, okay? Because this is to her. This is not to the man. It's her command to obey, not yours to demand. So if she's not doing it, then all you can do, other than maybe leaving the Bible open to Ephesians 5 and places all across the house, okay, leaving it in different places and you know, my, my dad always said that he hides my her, his, his wife's Christmas presents in the oven. <laughs> and they're there from like November, right? You get it? She never cooks. Okay, you didn't get that. Cool. Okay. So you can put the book, the, book, the Bible, and Ephesians 5 in, in conspicuous places around the, the house. But what that means is that you try to be the kind of leader that it would be a joy to submit to. You take the desire to be a type of leader that women would love, a woman would love to submit to. You play your role, and you trust God with her role. So what does it mean, ladies, is that you allow him to the space to steer the family. 
I'm doing premarital counsel right now with Casey and, uh, and Tony in our church and um, reading a, a book by Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. I love how Kathy Keller, his wife, explains it. She says, it means that in matters of disagreement, I yield to Tim the deciding vote. I get a vote, he gets a vote, he gets the deciding vote. She tells the story on their decision of whether to move to New York City to uh, plant uh, 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 Redeemer Church, Presbyterian, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which has had such impact for the last 30 years. She tells the story so he could pastor, and this is what she said. She said, he felt, yes, we should move to NYC. She knew. They had to make a decision. To not make one would functionally be making a decision against it. So he conceded, and he said, okay, honey, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And she said, Oh, no, you don't. You're not putting this on me. You have to make the decision and you bear the responsibility. Ladies, listen, you, this is good news. You never have to bear the responsibility of wrong decisions in your family. It's fully your husband's. That's the truth. It's his call. So, yeah, I've got a vote. Yeah, I've got an opinion. But you know what? At the end of the day, you're as a husband, me as a husband, I am taking the burden of responsibility. Ladies, you've been relieved of the burden of being accountable for a bad decision. This is how Tony Evans, Tony Evans, the great Tony Evans, he said, spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man. That's spiritual headship. Taking personal responsibility for the marriage relationship. He bears the burden of deciding to vote. That's what we are to do as men. Men, I've said this before, but let me say it again. And I want to say it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do. It's empowerment to do what you ought to do. Not license to do what I want to do. Empowerment to do what God asks of me to do. But wives... That means that you don't only follow him when you agree with him or feel like he's making the right decision. That's not submission, that's agreement. Submission is when you do something you don't want to do that he wants to do. You see? Agreement is, oh, I'll only submit when he makes the decision I want him to make. That's agreement, that's not submission. A lot of times a woman will come back from a conference, and there's nothing wrong with conferences, but they'll go to the women's conference. They'll come back and say, well, my husband's not a spiritual leader. And they wonder, what, what does that mean for how I follow him? Well, this verse doesn't say submit when he's a su- sufficiently spiritual leader in your eyes. It says submit at all times. It says submit. Submit. See, here's, here's what I've learned. Is dating couples, they usually focus on the evidences of grace in each other and they overlook evidences of the fall. But married couples usually do the reverse. They stop looking for evidences of grace and they start maximizing the evidences of the fall and how one of them, each of them is in fallenness. Ladies, listen to me. I want to tell you something about men. You probably already know this. Let me tell you something about men. Help you out real quick. If your husband is not a spiritual leader, your submission to him in this way can help call him up into this kind of leadership. It can help call him up into... Let me explain something about every guy. You may know it, but let me say it. Every guy from the day he is born, every male, from the day he is born, he's asking the question, do I have what it takes? 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 Some of us, like me, we got that information or affirmation from our father. We got it from our dads, and we became spiritual leaders. But a lot of guys I talk to, they never got that, so they doubt they have it, and they doubt that, and then they marry you. 
So now they've married you and they doubt that. You can call him up into that by saying, you know what? You lead. You do have what it takes. I'll speak to the king in you. Listen, your submission creates a vacuum that becomes an invitation. Your submission creates a vacuum that creates and becomes for your husband an invitation to lead in that way. And when he does, listen, wives, encourage him. Say things like, that's what I love about my man. That's what I look. That's what I've been waiting on. That's the leadership I've been wanting. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've expected. That's what I've known is always there. And watch him come alive. Watch him come alive. Listen, let me encourage you. Don't reject this passage just because you sing this warped. Don't reject it. All relationships can be twisted, marriage, parenting, work relationships, but that doesn't mean that the framework themselves are wrong. Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church in Texas, Dallas, Texas, he said, a husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say, how disgusting and archaic. No, no, no. A lot of people who say they are turned off by Christian teaching on marriage are actually attracted to the Christian marriages that they see. And listen to me. When the two of you start conducting your marriage this way, I, find, I promise you, you will find a deeper joy that you've been looking for. And this is what happy marriages are made for. Because listen, what is the primary goal of marriage? It's gospel reenactment. Your happiness is only second to that primary purpose. It's gospel reenactment. You know what that means? That means marriage is first and foremost not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. It's to not make you happy and a perfect mate, but to make you holy by teaching you how to love like Jesus. So when I know that marriage is not to make me happy, but marriage is to make me holy, marriage is the laboratory whereby God uses to make me more like Christ, then I realize my marriage is indeed gospel reenactment. Listen, marriages that fall apart do not do so because couples fall out of love with each other. They do so because couples fall out of fellowship with Jesus. You don't fall out of love with one another. You fall out of repentance with Jesus. That's how hardness of heart happens. That's how marriages begin to be torn apart. See, what's amazing about Ephesians 5 is that when we are faithful to do the task or role that God gives us, it makes us more attractive to our spouse. Ladies, can I tell you real quick what the mega need of every man is? The mega need, this is his big mega need, the need above every other need. It's the need of respect. Love is translated respect in the marital relationship. You know what men do? Men become in an environment of respect. That's why the Bible tells us here in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 that women are to respect her husband. Submit and respect their husband because the major mega need of every man is respect. Men will become in an environment of respect. That is to say men become something else when they are respected. This is how emotional affairs happen, which ultimately lead to physical affairs because a man's not receiving the respect at home. Home is a difficult environment. Home is a hard environment. He goes to work and then some little damsel in distress begins to start showing him respect and speaking words of respect over him and he will change and he will become a different person than he is at home because men become something different when they are respected. So you know what that means for us women? That means for those who are women in the room, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, you're able to win over your husband without even a word through your pure and chaste behavior. You know what that means? That means that you can be violent in prayer, but you have to be soft in interpersonal conversation. So you are your husband's equal in every way. You have the right to go to your husband and say whatever you want to say to your husband, but no, once you've told him what you want to tell him, you don't then try to force it on him or you will disrespect him and he will never change into the person you want him to be. 
So you can be your husband's equal in speaking it, but you need to be gentle in person and then go to your prayer closet and be violent in prayer. Don't become the enforcer. Let the Holy Spirit be the enforcer. Yes, you can say what you want to say to him, but the moment you try to enforce it, you disrespect. And you know what the lady, ladies, number one mega need is? It's above every other need. It's the need of security. The need of security. That women become a greenhouse, so to speak, developing into all that God's called them to be when they are in an environment of security. So men, we are to provide an environment of security. You know what that means? You know, the University of Pennsylvania a few years ago, they did a study. And uh, they asked women what they, when they found their uh, husbands most attractive, when they wanted to have sex with their husbands the most. And out of all these responses, you would have thought this was, you know, you know, there would be one or two or three that would be close. But above all, above all, other responses was they found their husbands most attractive when the husband was cleaning the house. When the husband was cleaning the house. When he was cleaning some part of the house. Now, here's the next thing. The researchers then did another experiment. Now, I'm not saying that later they, some of them may have died. But the researchers took sweat. They took man's sweat and they placed it on 50 women on their upper lip without them knowing what it was. They put the men's sweat on the upper lip of the women and when the women had the men's upper, or the, the sweat of men on their upper lip, they had three things. Number one, they felt secure, they felt more romantic, and they felt confident. So men, what am I telling you? I'm telling you, you are one clean house away from the night of your dreams, okay? <laughs> If you'll just go vacuum and then let her smell your pits and vacuum and let her smell your pits and vacuum, I mean, she will be, it will be on like Donkey Kong. So the reality, the reality is this is how God's created us. Okay? He's created us. And what's amazing is that when we fulfill the role that God's given us in Ephesians 5, we become more attractive to our spouses. Now listen to me. For those of you who are single in the room, please understand there are other laboratories where God works on this too. Marriage is just one of them. So Paul's main objective here is our hearts towards God. Marriage is just one lab, but there are others, which leads us to Paul's next example. Okay, Lab number two, children and parents. This is a second way, a second laboratory used by God to conform us to the image of Christ. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the fifth commandment, right? And the Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment with a promise. It's the first one with a promise in the Ten Commandments, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Now listen to this. You ready? You ready? Family is a lab where children learn to obey God by obeying their parents. Family is a lab where children learn to obey God by obeying their parents. See how this obedience ties to the Ten Commandments? Go back to that text again. Look at verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother. And he, and he connects honor your father and mother, which is the fifth commandment and the Ten Commandments with obey your parents and the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, look at this. Honor your father and mother is the fifth commandment, which means it's right in the middle of the... Ten commandments. Yeah, man, that's revolutionary, right? So that means there are four commandments before this. Notice this. And there are five commandments after that. You ready? The first four commandments are all about your relationship to God. The last five commandments are all about your relationship to other people. So is this relationship or this commandment about your relationship to God? Or is it about your relationship to other people? The answer is yes. Yes. It controls or serves as a transition because when we are children, the way we obey our parents is the way we obey God. 
Our parents, as children, our parents are literally standing in the place of God's authority in our life. So when we are young, our parents represent the authority of God. And in a way, they stand in God or in for God for a time. That means for those of you living at home, listen to me. If you're under the age of 18, how you submit to the authority of your mom and dad is how you submit to God. Now we got to let that sit there. How you submit to mom and dad is how you submit to God. Parents, look at me. Eyes right here. Don't look at your teenager right now, okay? Look at me. It's one of the reasons we take discipline so seriously. Why do we take discipline so seriously? Because I can. I looked at my son this morning who was causing another ruckus. And I said, son, you've got to understand, it's not about you coming and taking these vitamins. I care more about your heart than I do your behavior. But your behavior is messing up your heart. You're rebelling. And I care about your heart. I don't care about what I ask you to do and whatever it is. I'm caring about your heart. I don't care about your behavior. Your behavior will take care of itself when your heart's right. It's your heart I'm after. I'm getting your heart bent towards gospel obedience. It's getting your heart bent towards what God desires. And if you have a heart that goes against me, you will have a heart that goes against God as a teenager. If you have a heart that's rebellious against your daddy, I promise you, your heart will be rebellious against your heavenly father when you become of age. See, how they learn to respect you, how they learn to submit to you is how they will learn to submit to God. So look, I don't demand my kids respect me just because I'm me or because I don't want them to embarrass me when I'm with my friends. It's because of whom I represent. Mom and dad, every time you discipline, tell your kids that. I'm, I'm representing God to you right now. And I don't care so much about the behavior you just did. I care about the heart of disobedience that's there. That's what I care about. And I'm essentially standing in the gap. So we can say it this way. You ready? Parenting is a lab that teaches children to submit to God. That's what parenting is. It's a lab that teaches children to submit to God, which actually brings up a question that I get a lot. You get this question a lot in pastoral counseling. What about when you're older, Pastor Craig? Do you still have to obey your parents? This is a great question. What about when you're older? Well, we have adult couples, and we've had them in many, many occasions in our own ministry that were in our church with kids of their own who went to the mission field, and their parents tried to forbid them. I've had other young adults that felt a call to ministry, and their parents tried to do everything they could to get them from going into ministry. Okay? Well, notice very clearly here, the command is not to obey your parents. The command is to honor your parents. So as a child, you honor your parents by obeying them. But as you get older, you honor them by different ways. This is where it helps to understand that parents are a temporary stand-in for God. They're like the training wheels to obeying God. But the point is obeying God. So if you're older and your parents are doing something that's asking you to go away from what God's asked you to do, the way you honor them is by being who God's called you to be and not doing what they ask you to do. See, it's honor when I understand that God's obedience is what he's asking of me. Or my obedience is what he's asking of me. So by the time you leave the house, listen to me. You are supposed to have shifted the authority from your parents to God. Parents, we can say it this way. Our main focus and goal is to try to raise children who are independently dependent on God. We're trying to raise children who are independently dependent on the Lord. Which means, as you're a child and you're grown older, the way you honor your parents is you be the man or the woman that God desired you to become and obey Him, even if that means you go against 
their wishes sometimes because by obeying God, you are honoring the institution of parenting, which means that for some of you, the best way to honor your father and father and mother is to defy their wishes and do what God says. I'm not saying that's true for all, but it is true for some, absolutely true for some. Now, let me give you some other practical ways you can honor your parents. Let me give you real practical ones. Calling them sometimes. Calling your parents. Your parents. I've never met a parent that's like, man, I just feel like my kid's consulting me too much. I'm way too involved in my kid's lives. I've never met a parent that way. I'm just too involved. So calling them. Here's another one. Asking their opinion. They do have the benefit of a lot of years that you haven't lived yet. So just asking their opinion. They're the, usually the one who knows you intimately and cares about you as deeply as they do. There's very few that care about you the way your parents care about you, so you ask for their opinions. Or third, how about this one? Saying thanks? <laughs> That's a novel idea, right? Saying thank you and then being willing to say thank you again. Or how about this one? Making care for them in their old age, a priority of yours. So they care for you for the first 20 years. Might as well care for them for the last 20 years. Okay, you care for them. You make their care a priority for your life when it comes time in that season. Now, on the parent side, look, look on the parent side. Look at verse uh, four. Fathers, go back to verse four. Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. By the way, can I just pause right here? Correct me if I'm wrong, Lord, I apologize. I don't know one scripture in all of the Bible where God addresses moms to start the discipline. Every single one of them are fathers. There's not, a, there's not one, but yet what do we do in our culture? Uh, mom, mom's the disciplinarian. All the discipline leave that left up to mom. Fathers, you do your deal. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Don't stir them up, but bring them up in the training. Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. That means that you are primarily focused on what? You're primarily focused on character development. By the way, the book of Proverbs, which contains the, probably the most instruction on parenting anywhere in the Bible, is addressed specifically to a man. It's a father writing to a son, which shows us again that God looks to the father to be the spiritual head of the home, to set the example. So listen, you ready? Gospel-shaped discipline is less concerned with controlling the behavior and more concerned about the shape of their heart. So when I'm gospel-focused as a parent, I'm not really trying to look for certain repertoire of behavior coming out of my kids. I'm looking for a heart that is shaped after God's grace. I'm looking for a heart that is shaped after obedience to God because when you understand that, it will change your approach to discipline altogether because often when you're stirring up anger in them, it's because you've shifted your focus into their behavior controlling, which is more about your convenience than it is about their calling. See, see, when I am worried about my convenience, I want them to change behavior. Well, that's not concerned about their development. It's concerned about me having a quiet day in my, ha my house. So we provoke our children to wrath when we move to behavior-focused parenting, not gospel-centered, heart-shaping parenting. Now, we can say a lot of things about this. I'm just going to give you a couple books. I don't have the space today. I would recommend a couple books to you. Shepherding a Child's Heart, Ted Tripp. Excellent book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Number two, Gospel Powered Parenting. Another great book that you could read, parents. Excellent as it relates to parenting. But I've got to move on to number three. Here's the third lab that God uses to teach us to be more like himself. It's the laboratory of work. It's the laboratory of work. Look at verse five through nine. Let's read it together. Servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Pause real quick. For the sake of these verses, here's what I need you to do. I need you to read servants and masters as employer-employee relationship. That's real important. 
Some translations, maybe yours says slaves. Most translations don't use that word because Paul in no way is condoning what we in the Western world think of when we say slavery. Paul makes it very clear in other places, the Bible, uh, the wickedness of that practice. When you think of slavery, Paul is referring to what we call indentured servanthood. Paul is talking about indentured servanthood. What is indentured servanthood? That's typically a volunteer contract that didn't last for a lifetime, and it certainly wasn't based on race. You could be of the same race and still be an indentured servant of somebody of the same race. So what Paul is referring to, now granted, it, was, it wasn't a great working situation because you literally would sell yourself to someone, but it is in no way a commendation of the chattel, so to speak, slavery system that we think of when we say the word slave. So think of when you hear earthly masters and slave, think of employer and employee, all right? Now, this is a Christian philosophy of work. People ask me all the time, what does it look like to be a Christian businessman? What does that look like? I get asked that question a lot. What is a Christian philosophy of work. How should I work in the workplace? What does it mean to be a Christian at work? And for the last 20 years, can we just admit in our nation, we think it means like some really dumb stuff, like writing God bless you on the receipts, you know, like um, open up a a coffee shop called Jehovah Java, you know. (laughs) I found, by the way, these are real. These are real logos I found. Like Hebrews, like look look at this one, like Hebrews, like where your cup runneth over. That was a, a coffee shop. Okay, I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but this is not what Paul's talking about when he's talking about uh, the, the Christian philosophy of work, right? This is a true, this is a true coffee shop. Or open up another one called um, St. Arbucks, St. Arbucks, you know, like you, you go to St. Arbucks to receive, this is a true coffee shop. Or, or if you cut hair, you open up a hair salon called His Clips, you know, like, no, that's not what he's talking about. Or you open up a hair salon called A Cut Above, you know, like, no, not A Cut Above. That's not what he's, he's speaking to. I saw a list the other day, this is funny, came in an email of ways to share your faith in the workplace. Now, some of them were okay, but some were like this. And I kid you not. You ready? Number 61. Put up a sign that says, ask us about our exchange policy. When customers ask, let them know about your actual policy. Then ask if they would like to hear about the greatest exchange policy on the planet, Jesus' righteousness for your sin. How about this one, number 60. When a customer has paid his bill in full, send an invoice that says, paid in full, These were the same words the bloody Jesus spoke from the cross about your sin. (laughs) And you're like, I'm not sure if I can do that, right? Or remember the story I told you a couple months ago about the American Airlines pilot in 2004, he was fired. He was fired in 2004 because the American Airlines pilot came back from a mission trip and he got on the cabin. He's there in the cabin one day and all the passengers are getting on the plane, the fuselage, and he got on the PA system and he said, you know what? Uh, He said, uh, I want everybody in here, if you're a born again Christian, raise your hand. And some people are like, what? And they start raising their hands and they're like, all right, all for the rest of you in the cabin. I want you to look at somebody that's around you. Just know that if their hand's raised, then you can go up to them and ask them questions about what it means to be born again. And, and they'll tell you about what saving grace. And he was passionate, right? He was off the mission field. And he said, um, he said for those of you who didn't raise your hand, um, I, we don't sense any problems uh, or forecasting any problems on our flight today, but you never know. You can never be too sure, right? And so, so he's like telling them like, you know, like, well, you, this is an opportunity for you to give your your life to Jesus. Well, Paul gives a whole lot better way. And here's how Paul explains living out your faith at work. You ready? If you're an employee, you should obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now look, in that verse, just leave it up there. I see 
what I would say is three things of what Christ-like submission looks like at your work. Here's what Christ-like submission looks like at your work. Number one, a cheerful disposition towards obedience. A cheerful disposition towards obedience. Notice it says, obey them as you obey Christ or would Christ. So listen to me, submitting to your boss is how you submit to Christ. Submitting to the employer is how you submit to God. Now that's not supposed to be dependent on how nice your boss is or even if your boss treats you fairly or rewards you fairly. Because ultimately Paul says you're not working for him or her, you're working for God. You're not working for your boss, whether they're good or bad boss, you're working for God. Well, they didn't pay me for what I was worth. Well, God will repay them one day, but he's your first audience. And in every assignment, he's the real boss behind your earthly boss. So you do your work for him. So number one, a cheerful disposition towards obedience. Here's number two, a commitment to excellence. A commitment to excellence. Look what it says, not by way of eye service. So you don't just do what's minimum required to get by. No, no, Christians are trying to bless their employers by the way they work for their employers. They're trying to bless the company they work for and the people they work for and the coworkers they work for by living a life that is committed to excellence. Best illustration of this is C.S. Lewis. I've told you this before, but C.S. Lewis talks one time about how when the early settlers and explorers came to the New World, he said they would come into the Midwest and they would discover valleys that much to their thousands of years that no eye had ever seen. And in the middle of these valleys was these exquisite, beautiful, exquisite flowers. And he said, it's an interesting question is if these flowers existed in this valley for thousands of years and no eyes ever seen them, are they wasted? Aren't these flowers wasted if no human eyes ever seen them? Like did God waste his creativity? He said, no, God still saw them and God creates beauty for himself. Now apply that to work. C.S. Lewis says, even when others don't see my flower of my work, God still sees it. Even when other people don't see my flower, even when other people don't see how exquisite I've been, God sees it. And God created me to be committed to excellence for his glory. That I'm not working for man, I'm working for God. So I have a commitment to excellence. Listen to me. At your job right now, are you doing the minimum required to get by? Or are you working hard to try to bless your employer and the customers? And then here's thirdly and finally, come on, Maddie, an attitude of servanthood. An attitude of servanthood. Notice what the text says. He says, rendering service with a good will. One of the distinctive things about the Christian approach to work is this. The world, look, church, the world sees work as a necessary evil to get money. Here's how the world sees work. Are you ready? You work, work, work to get money. When you got enough money, you stop working. That's not God's view of work. You know what God's view of work is? God's view of work is a way of serving our fellow man. Money's just a secondary byproduct of that. So we don't see work like, oh, I got to work, 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 get enough money, stop working. No, we see work as God's opportunity to us to serve our fellow man, to serve the people around us. We recognize that God put us on the earth and he filled the earth with raw materials and we are to develop those raw materials for the benefit of other human beings. He turns to verse nine to the bosses and he says, bosses or masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So listen to me, if you're in here and you have power over others, that means you're a boss. He says, use that power the way Jesus used his power in your life to lift up and empower, not to manipulate and control. 
to lift others up. You see, there's two things you can do with power. Two things you do with power. Number one, you can collect it. That's what the world does. You just collect it. You hoard it for yourself. You use it for your own benefit. Or number two, you leverage it for other people. God gave away his power to serve others. Listen to me. Romans 15 tells us, strength in God's kingdom is for service, not for status. So if you're strong, you're to serve others. If you're in lead, if you're in boss, you're to lift up and empower, not manipulate and control. There's so much more to study, but no time. God's laboratory in marriage. God's laboratory in parenting. God's laboratory in work. Now, Paul nears the end of the book of Ephesians, and he's trying to get the Ephesians to see that in all the relationships, even the normal ones, they are serving God. And I have maybe a question for you today. I've talked today about the horizontal chaos you may be experiencing, the chaos in your family, the chaos in your marriage, the chaos with your work or your employees or bosses. My question is this. What if the horizontal chaos was a result of vertical disruption? What if today you're in this room and your horizontal chaos is a result of the fact that your vertical relationship has been disturbed? I've heard it said that you can measure the progress of your Christian life by how well you relate to your spouse, your parents, and your employer. Another way we can say that is the truest measure of your Christianity is how you are at home. How you are at home. That's the truest measure of your Christianity. So let's stop and ask that question. Are you ready? If you based your spiritual progress solely on how you lived it out at home, how do you think you're doing? If you based your Christian progress solely on how you lived it out at home, how well do you think you're doing? What Paul shows us is that the quality of our horizontal relationships are back equally to the quality of a vertical relationship. Disruption here leads to chaos here. If you're satisfied in Christ here, if you're secure in Christ here, if you're chosen by Christ here, if you're feeling significant in Christ, happy in your reward with Christ, you stop putting so much weight on these other relationships. That's why in some dating relationships, they never even have a chance to grow because the the, the two dating partners are looking to find fulfillment in one another, which totally exhausts and takes out the breath and chance of that relationship ever working in the first place. Many of us can't be good husbands or wives or parents or children or employees because there's something wrong here, and that makes us dissatisfied here and we're trying to squeeze out of here only what we can get here and we're trying to exhaust everything here that we can only receive here and you have all the conflict in the relationships here because all these people are bigger to you than Jesus is and they can't be bigger to you than Jesus is Jesus has to be bigger to you than they are so you've got to turn your attention first here and the good news is that when you get this right he'll take over all of these the horizontal chaos will dissipate because the vertical disruption has been removed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.